0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. You would continue to have your way in our hearts, that you would continue to to work through each one of us to give us a deeper, clearer understanding of that amazing grace that was brought to fruition some 2,000 years ago. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles in front of you and you'll turn to uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 34, um, <clears throat> this morning I'm going to start out a little differently and I, I want to pose a thought here of just how absurd the birth of Christ is. And that sounds like a great way for a preacher to start, doesn't it? But I want you, I want us to think about that, and I want us to begin to just just look at it uh, initially from a human perspective. In Luke chapter 1, the angels have come and they've told Mary that she is going to bear a child. And her reaction is exactly like every other woman would be. Luke 1:34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Most people are familiar with the story in which Gabriel is sent to Nazareth to announce the future birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, but I want to ask a question of that announcement of the Christmas story, in fact, of all Christianity. My question is, isn't it sound hard to believe? The question is on most people's mind. It's on everyone's mind before they come to know Christ. And quite frankly, many Christians at times may even be prone to doubt. It was on Mary's mind for sure, although she did not ask in an unbelieving way. When the angel appeared to her to say that she would conceive and give birth to a son and that conception of the child would be without a male agent, that the baby would have no human father? Mary's response was, How can this be? I'm a virgin. The human mind can only reason in a human fashion. And so, apart from Christ in the Spirit, we only can look and think and see and process in our humanness. Now, <clears throat> there are different ways of asking the question. You can ask, how can this be, and be quite unbelieving. If you recall, this was the case with Zechariah in the earlier part of this chapter when God, the angel came and said that he and his wife would bear a son in their old age. Uh, he would be the, the forerunner, and he would be the one who would announce the birth of Christ. And Zechariah's response in Luke 1.18 was, how can I be sure of this? It was an unbelieving question, and he was mildly judged for it. Zechariah was unable to speak until the child was born and named according to the angel's instruction. A person can ask how in a believing way, which is what Mary did. And yet the questions deal with the same thing. As long as we're thinking on the basis of known physical laws, what God was promising Mary is impossible. And to say that it is impossible is really another way of saying it's kind of absurd. So let's look at the impossible story for a few minutes. Number one, an impossible birth. Think of the birth first of all. Even apart from the uh, the miracle involved in the conception of the child by a virgin, it was not the birth of a normal human child. What makes this birth impossible in human terms is that it is also said to be the birth of God. That is, the birth of one who is both man and God. Now, how can this be if God's eternal? Isn't it absurd to think that the infinite, exalted, distant, holy God of the universe, a God we cannot even see, should make himself man, a man who could not only be seen, but be handled and touched, but also, as we very well know, could be crucified. The incarnation was absurd to the Greeks. The basic principle of Greek philosophy was that the radical distinction between what is spiritual and what is physical, usually expressed in the distinction between spirit and body or or mind and matter. According to the Greek thought, the two could never be mingled. To the Greek mind, it was the height of absurdity to think that God, who is the basis of all reality and is non-material, could take on human flesh. The result was that when the church spread from Jerusalem into the worlds dominated by the Greeks, heresies began to crop up. They believed that Jesus was just a man that God came upon him for various things and then left him before the crucifixion because, after all, God cannot die. Now, we could ask the identical question, though for different reasons. Isn't it absurd to think that God himself, the very God of all creation, should become man. And isn't it absurd that this God-man, Jesus, should be born in a stable? I mean, if this child was really God, as the Bible claims, we would expect him to have been the most honored birth possible, to be born in a palace. You would have expected the angels to go on through every town around the world announcing that he's here. But here, In the case of this birth of the very Son of God, almost nothing is said. It just happens in a faraway land, in a small town, to a couple who had no worldly status and did not even have a place to stay the night. Then, of course, there is the miraculous conception. Mary was disturbed by it. People have been disturbed by it ever since. Even if you accept the fact that God became a man, isn't it absurd to think that it happened by means of a virgin conception? We know enough biology to know that that's impossible. This goes against all laws of nature. Number two, the impossible life. Consider not only do we see absurdities in the birth of Jesus Christ, we see them in his life as well. For the first 30 years of his life, he lived in complete obscurity. Then, suddenly, at about the age of 30, he appears near the Jordan River, was baptized by his relative, John the Baptist, went into Judea, the Judean desert, where he was tempted by the devil and overcame him. At that point, He began a three-year ministry in which he traveled throughout the obscure land of Palestine. The farthest he ever got from it was the northern direction to Sidon and across the Sea of Galilee to an area known as the Decapolis. He taught people about God. He turned water into wine. He multiplied fishes and loaves to feed many people. He healed lepers. Eventually, so the story says... He raised some from the dead. But then came the arrest and the crucifixion. And we discover that he was able to do miracles in the lives of others, who was even able to perform resurrections, was, as people said about him at the time, unable, so it would seem, to save himself. Isn't this all absurd? How can God die? And finally, as if this isn't hard enough to believe, the story of his death is followed by accounts of his resurrection. So the whole concept as it's laid out to the human mind is absurd. It makes no sense. And this is one of the major stumbling blocks that man has today trying to wreck in supernatural Holy God in human terms. But what I want to show you this morning is that, quite frankly, the absurdity proves the deity. By acknowledging that the whole thing is absurd shows that absurdity is actually the wisdom of God. God created man to have fellowship with God. But man fell into sin which separated him from God and brought him under judgment. It was not right that man, having fallen into sin, should be left to perish. It was necessary that God, who created man in the first place, knowing that he would fall, should intervene for his salvation. But how was that to be done? The sin of man is the sin against God. If man has sinned against God, man is the one who must make restitution. Man must make the wrong right. Did you fully understand that? Man sinned. Man must pay. But the problem is, every man born of Adam and Eve since are all sinners. And God is absolutely holy and perfect. There can be no sin in his presence. So how on earth is a sinful man supposed to pay this price? Man is a sinner. And the sin against God is so great, so infinite in its offensive nature, that no mere man can make it right. The only one in the universe who could possibly make it right is God. But here's the dilemma. Man must pay the debt, but he can't. Only God can pay it, but God isn't man. How then can the problem be resolved? Well, the only way is by the incarnation. God had to become man so that God, who alone could pay the price of man's redemption, might be in the person of the one who had to pay it. It is true that God cannot die not as God, but in the person of Jesus Christ, that's what he did. So what we begin to see now is that he came in God's way. There's a third way our question can be asked, however. Not what happened or why did it happen, but rather, how did it happen? How did the impossible come to be? Well, we should be led to acknowledge that even from things that we know. We can actually see things around us to help give us an understanding. Uh, years ago, a British writer by the name of John Ruskin wrote a parable called um, An Ounce of Slime. He imagined himself visiting a mill town where he saw in the sewers the slime coming out of the mill. And he asked the question, what is slime? And he answered by saying, slime is a mixture of clay, sand, soot, and water. Now let's take a few minutes and imagine that each one of them is being worked upon uh, to its greatest value. What happens, when you take, uh, what happens when you take clay and purify it, as is often the case in nature? Well, if you take the impurities out of the clay, you are left with white earth, which in the hands of a skilled craftsman can be turned into valuable porcelain. Porcelain is so valuable that it can sit on a king's table. If you process it more with more pressure and expose it to sunlight, the clay can become a jewel, it can become a sapphire. Take sand and work upon it in the same manner. Under pressure, the sand will also become hard and clear. It will reflect a variety of the sun's rays, reds, blues, greens, and it becomes an opal. Take the soot. Soot is carbon. And what happens when you purify carbon, when you put it under extreme pressure? It becomes the hardest substance we know. It becomes absolutely clear, it becomes a beautiful diamond. And the water? The water, which is so muddied by impurities that we think it's not fit for anything, eventually evaporates, is purified, falls back down as beautiful rain, and in the wintertime as beautiful snowflakes. No two are alike. A beautiful creation of God. And all of this from slime. So... It should not surprise us that if God is able to create a world in which wonders like these can take place, God, who is above and greater than nature, can certainly do what we consider supernaturally. And as a matter of fact, if God is able to have slime elements be made into, the, into great and amazing things, reaching their highest potential. Why should we be surprised when he does the same thing for us? That we might, by his power, be brought to our highest potential through his forgiveness by becoming a man. God sent his son to become a man to purify us, to change us into beautiful jewels for his glory. And you know, it's interesting when you look at these elements and how they've changed and you consider what God did by becoming a man, you begin to realize the potential that God is wanting in each one of us. You know, I came to Christ as a 17-year-old. Uh, a missionary pastor planted a church in my town and there in the, in the um, town hall of Shelburne, Vermont, I gave my life to Christ. Wasn't sure everything I did, but in months and years to follow... As I began to grow, made a lot of mistakes, made some good decisions, made a lot of bad ones, as we often do. But through life, God begins to pressure. He begins to work on us. He begins to mold us. He begins to make changes and guide us. But I can tell you for certain (laughs) that as my life progressed, in the last five years, when God radically changed my career and put me behind this pulpit and then gave cancer. The pressure is the greatest thing that ever happened because what's forming, what's being formed, is a diamond. Now, I'm far from a diamond. Don't, don't mess that up. But what I want you to understand is that as God works through each one of us, he is forming us to be a beautiful, faceted jewel for his glory. Don't run from the pressure. It's the greatest mistake you'll ever make. You know, in our humanness, when we don't trust God and we rely on ourselves, we're constantly looking for ways out of the pressure In fact, we work hard to design our lives to be pressure-free. It's what makes the world go round. It's what makes marketing go around. But the reality is, is that when God is working on you, he is molding and pressuring you to form you into something. And when Christ sent his son to become a man in a very supernatural fashion, to take on the form of the man so he could pay the price for your sin and mine, His goal is to make you into his beautiful jewel for eternity. And that's such an amazing thing for us to understand. So we need a Savior who is not just a Savior of the body, one who can save us from mere physical death, but also a Savior of our spirits. We need one who is able to turn us from being increasingly hard, bitter, arrogant, Selfish people, we are and make us like himself. This is what God does. God takes the slime of our moral and spiritual lives and turns it into jewels which he is able to sparkle before him forever. And this is the great joy of Christ coming into the world. This is the great joy of him taking on the form of man to pay the price for our sins. This is the great jewel that transforms our lives into what he wants. But we have to ask the question, why? Why? Why would God go to all of those lengths for me? Now, I've tried to answer these questions in several ways, dealing with what the story tells and with how it may have happened. But I've tried to show that although there are elements to it we certainly fail to understand, there is nevertheless nothing absurd about it. As a matter of fact, it is the most reasonable story in the universe. But there is a final way in which we need to ask the question, not how or what, but why. Why? If we are asking why God should have done this, I have no answer. Why God should have saved us is, humanly speaking, inexplicable. God is holy. God made us in his image. God made us to have fellowship with him. We, by our own wills, have made a model of our lives. We have done it with open rebellion against God. We have turned our faces from him. Why then should God, the infinite God of the universe, take to himself the form of a helpless baby in a womb of a mother, be born in the pain of childbirth, be laid in a stable, grow up, be nailed to a cross, and die an ignominious death? Why should God do that? For us? Well, there is an answer, of course. And it may be an absurd answer. But it's still an answer. And the answer is that God did it because He loves us. One commentator I was looking at asked the question Do you ever think that love is absurd? Do you ever think that? Do you ever see a couple and you look at her and you go, what does she see in him? Or what does he see in her? Right? But there's love. You can't see it, touch it, explain it, right? It, It is hard to understand. God, why do you love us? Why did you send Jesus to be our Savior? How is God going to answer the question in terms that we can understand? Can God give us a reason? Can God explain his love to us? God simply says, I did it because I love you. And if we say to God, but why did you love us? God's answer is, because I love you. That's his answer. Moses explained that to Israel on one occasion when the question came to Moses about why? Why Israel? Did you ever wonder that when you study the Old Testament? Of all the people around, of all the nations, why Israel? Well, it was a profound question. But Moses does not give an analytical answer. He simply says, simply, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved them because he loved them. You know, we always feel like we must earn it, don't we? We always feel like we have to have part in it. We always feel like I have to be the one, the agent, the one to bring it about. But God is saying very clearly, I love you because I love you. And who can know the mind of God? But when you're in a relationship with somebody and you love each other, the world just goes by. You have that relationship. But when you begin to understand that the God of the universe, before the foundation of the world, chose to love you and call you to himself and send his son to become a man, to die to pay the man price because he loves you? That's an incredible thing to fathom. Now, I want you to understand something here, very important as a result of this. This is very critical to grasp. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. What this means is that if we have understood the Christmas story, we have understood it to the most profound level, a level beyond which understanding can go, that God has done this because he loves us and loved us in a way, then we must love others also. Now, Some of the older versions of scripture say that they they insert the word him. It says, we love him because he first loved us. And for certain, that is why we love him, because he first loves us. But the original text doesn't say that. It literally says, we love because he loves. So you understand, this whole relationship of love is based on God loving us and then putting that love within us we start by loving God but we also love one another and even unlovely individuals it's apart from reason but we learn to love them as God loved us you want to know how to have the greatest marriage learn to love God you want to learn how to have the greatest single life learn to love God He completes everything. And you and I can sit around all day and debate the reasons for love and why God loves us and go through the whole thing, and you're going to keep coming back to the very same thing. He loves you because he loves you. And that is a fascinating truth to find yourself sitting at. That's a fascinating place to come to to realize that there is absolutely nothing in your mind or my mind or in your ability or my ability to cause God to love me. He loved because he chose to love you. And we love because he first loved us. So what does that tell us about our daily walk? The people we're with, who we're around. Those who by God's example has given us instruction to love even unlovely, even those that are very hard to love. And this is why it's so spectacular when you realize that when Christ came into this world, you know, he, he was very, um, he was completely unseen for 30, almost 33 years, or 30 years until he started his ministry. And then he had three years of hard, fast-paced ministering where he taught people how to live and how to love. And we've said this many times before that he came to save sinners. He came to love the unlovely. And so when we love because he first loved us, our ultimate goal ought to be to love those who don't know the Savior, to love those who need Christ because he first loved us. That's where all of us were. And now, because of the capacity he has given us, because of his love, we can be Christ to someone else. The question is, do you understand your relationship with Christ? Do you understand that capacity that when he came to this world, he paid the price for your sins because he loved you? Nothing you can do, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't do anything humanly speaking to try to get it. All you can do is accept it as a free gift. And the more I think about that, Do you ever stop to think that the love you give to someone else is a free gift? It's easy to love people you like. That's easy for all of us. But to be able to love the difficult. To be able to stand before those as Christ and love them in spite of who they are. In spite of what they've done. In spite of how they've hurt you but to love because Christ loved you. He came into the world in a very supernatural way because it's so far beyond our ability to comprehend it. But it had to be that way in order for him to pay the price because man had to pay the price. Beyond human understanding, at times, but true faith ties it all together. And when you and I surrender to Christ and allow the spirit to do his ministry in our hearts and lives, we begin to understand in such a depth the wonderful love that he has given to each one of us by supernaturally becoming a man and taking the price of our sins away. If you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship with Christ, wouldn't it be spectacular that this Christmas season would be the time when you begin to understand what true love is. That Christ loved you before the foundation of the world. May we all come this season to put him first in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the absurdity of the gospel. It is definitely absurd in human terms. It's hard to understand in our human capacity. But When we surrender to you and your spirit begins to give us understanding, we realize how spectacular your love is and how through your spirit you begin to give us understanding of that love that is so strong, so powerful, so carved in stone that it will never let us go. And to know that when we come to you and cast all our cares upon you, and surrender our lives to you. You seize us until the day of redemption. And no man, as, John, as Jesus said in John 17, no man can pluck us out of your hand. We are sealed until the day of redemption. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us the excitement and the encouragement and the ability to go out and live Christ before the world. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.